What's up, party people? It's Zoe McDaniel here, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Welcome back. Today we're going to be covering part two of the Von Dutch story. So I realize last week we talked about a lot, so I'll kind of summarize it for you before we get started. But I did want to say I hope you all had a lovely Valentine's Day. As of the time that I'm recording this, no one has asked me to be their Valentine yet, so like I'm a little bit butthurt. I think this comes out after Valentine's Day, so it's too late. You can't do anything about it. But hopefully, maybe some of you guys bought some art that I have been making for Valentine's Day. I hope that you did. But I mean, I know a lot of people don't like Valentine's Day, and I understand why, you know, capitalism, but I also just love love. So if you did something cute for Valentine's Day, let me know. I want to hear about it. Send me like a message or something. Tell me what you did so I can live through you because like, yeah. (laughs) So let's go ahead and get back to why the fuck we're all here today. And that is to talk about the juicy story of Von Dutch. So in the last episode, we talked kind of about how it all started. So we talked about Von Dutch himself, the kind of counter counterculture movements that inspired him and that he was a big part of in influencing. And then we introduced Ed Boswell, who is basically completely out of the picture at this point. Bobby Vaughn and his father figure, Mike Castle, who are just like two bad motherfuckers, I guess you don't want to mess with. And then we talk about Mark Rivas, who you really don't want to fucking mess with, (laughs) him or his family. And we talked about Bronze Age and how that was kind of like the prison love child of Mike Castle and how it was snatched away from him. And then how he met Ed Boswell and started up Von Dutch. Well, Von Dutch was already started, but he came in and kind of made Von Dutch like what it was. This very like cool kind of like white trash, um, I guess, ghetto kind of like underground clothing brand that just started really to pick up traction. They were, you know, getting a lot of attention from celebrities, not really knowing what to do with it. And then we have our new friend, Mr. Tony Sorensen, who decided to sweep in and become or swoop in and become the CEO of the company and really get it off the ground and get it running. So the last kind of big thing that we talked about was Tony has officially cut off Bobby and Mark from Von Dutch, which I don't think Mark was ever like legally or contractually associated with Von Dutch. I think he was he was working with Bobby, who, who was still, I guess in his words, peddling clothes, peddling Von Dutch and whatever, marketing for Von Dutch. So they were kind of like building this culture around Von Dutch. They were partying. They were trying to create this image of what Von Dutch stood for. And they felt like ever since Tony came in, they didn't really have as much exposure to the business the way that they wanted to. So they were like, yo, Tony, we want more involvement. And Tony was like, okay, bet. Let me write this contract that will allow me to like kick you out at the first sign of you not doing what I want you to do. So. Mark and Bobby are no longer affiliated with Von Dutch, and they're not too happy about it. Um, and I know I had also mentioned that Tony and Mike were having some issues. You know, Mike or Tony at this point has invested over a million dollars into the company, and they're starting to have like some struggles. And that's kind of where we left off. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Part two, things get scary. Mark and Bobby, they reach out to Mike and they're like, yo, we want to meet you at this clothing store in Venice called Slave. And Mike's like, all right, whatever. Like, I'm cool with Bobby. Bobby's cool with Mark. So we're probably all cool. Like, whatever. I'm just going to go see what's up. And so Mike gets there. And when he walks in, they're like playing rap music. They're drinking alcohol. They've got bandanas like over their faces. And there's just like guns chilling on the table. and. Mark told Mike to do what he said, 
or they were going to kill him. And this is about to get a little bit tricky because, like, Mark and Mike, Mark and Mike. Mark is the gang-banging friend, quote, that's what Bobby called him. Mike is our, like, creative director of Von Dutch and Bronze Age. So Mark tells Mike, he's like, listen, do what we say or we will kill you. They're not bluffing. None of these guys are bluffing. These are, like, legit people who will hurt you. And Mike says that Bobby was there, there with Mark, involved in the activities, and that he talked to him, and he was like, Bobby, why are you doing this? Like, we're fucking bros. I basically raised you. You lived with me. We've been in this together. And Bobby's like, I wasn't there. He says that he was, like, there in the building, but he wasn't there, like, in the room. So I'm like, I don't know. He was there to an extent. So Mark is, like, roughing Mike up, beating him up, getting physical, telling Mike that, like, he needs to give Bobby back his piece of the company, which, at this point, like, Mike can't really do a ton about that because Tony's the one who's, like, making all the money moves and he's in charge. And I get that, like, they're just like, dude, Mike, we were in this from the beginning and you kind of left me behind. You, You sold out. Like, you sold out to Tony. So they're upset. They're telling Mike that he needs to give Bobby back his piece of the company. And Bobby says that Mike is lucky that Mark didn't kill him that night because, like, Mark definitely would have and he was pretty aggressive. Mike finally was just like, okay, okay, like, I'll see what I can do about it. I'll talk to Tony, chill out. And they're like, all right, cool. So they make plans for the next day to meet at a Johnny Rockets on Melrose. And the whole point of the meeting was to get Mike to sign this new contract that was going to reinstate part of Von Dutch back to Bobby. And then, like, they're sitting there in this restaurant, and all of a sudden, there's, like, tons of helicopters outside. They hear the little, like, whatever the fuck, propellers outside of the restaurant. And then, all of a sudden, a fuck ton of cops just come running inside of the restaurant. Like, 50 cops standing there pointing guns at them. Bobby thinks that what happened was Mike told the cops that Bobby and Mark were going to kill him. Because of the night before, they were like, we're going to kill you. So, like, it's a valid thing for him to think that they might kill him. Mark and Bobby, these two like gangster looking dudes, and they walk up in this place with like this briefcase and they set it on the table and like the contract, I guess, or like whatever, something's inside the briefcase. They're about to do a business deal. But like, I guess the police and everybody thought that it was a gun in there. And so basically Mark and Bobby didn't even have guns on them at all. Like they were, they were being genuine. They were like, okay, you know, we fuck with you, Mike. You you slipped up a little bit. You let Tony get in charge, take away the company from us. But we still fuck with you. Like, we're not going to hurt you as long as you give us back our part of the company or Bobby's part of the company. So they didn't have guns on them. And they were literally just there to get the contract signed. As it turns out, Mike wasn't the person who told the cops, obviously, because he's like also a gangster and like not trying to get the cops on him. Like he, everyone who knows Mike says that he's like not the dude you want to fuck with. So like, I really don't think Mike would have done that. Turns out Janelle, Mike's ex-wife, who I think at this time was still his current wife, is the woman who called the cops. She did it to protect Mike. So it wasn't Mike. She knew everything that was going on and like she was scared of the route that Bobby was taking. That's what she says in the documentary. But I'm like, you were married to Mike and like he's supposedly this badass motherfucker who like is connected to the Escobar family. So it's like, I mean, it's really not that far-fetched. I guess it's just because it's Bobby. She viewed him like a son, and he even said that she was very motherly to him and stuff. So, like, they had this relationship. So I think I think she was just, like, genuinely scared that, like, one of them was going to hurt the other. And in her, like, moment of weakness, she snitched or, like, tipped the cops off to something that wasn't actually the case. So it was already around people who were doing these things, but she, I guess, I don't know. She just wanted to protect Bobby and Mike. Nothing came of this, though, because they didn't actually have any weapons on them. They were, like, actually just there for the contract, so they didn't get arrested or anything. And this did sever the relationship between Mike and Bobby, obviously, because, like, this woman, Janelle, in the documentary, she didn't say that, like, she said that at the moment when she tipped the cops off, she did it anonymously, and she said that her admitting it in the documentary was probably the first time she'd ever admitted it. So this whole time, Bobby thinks that Mike was the person who called the cops on them, He was like, wow, Mike, like, you really did that. So it obviously severed the relationship. From the docuseries, though, it wasn't really clear, but it seems like the contract was never signed, and this was just the beginning of bad blood amongst everyone, because Bobby doesn't really get back into the company that like that, so I'm thinking 
shit went down that day and that was kind of like the breaking point. So now we're going to take a little turn and we're going to talk about Christian and the company taking a little bit of a different direction with their approach. So at this point, Tony has been involved with Von Dutch for about a year and a half. And he he's like, I want to focus on a women's line. Let's do that. And they decide to hire Christian Audigier. It's French. I listened to the pronunciation, but like it was in French dialect and it was, I don't know if I can make that sound. Um, he was a Frenchman. <laughs> a Frenchman. He was a Frenchman. And he was a denim guru. And his style was inspired by rock and roll, particularly like the Rolling Stones. So it, it was kind of a perfect fit, honestly. Christian had previously worked in New York, where he worked with companies like Guess, Levi's, Diesel, and more. He had just moved to LA, and he was down bad and, like, really needed the work. Christian had this style of jeans that he was actually designing for another company. It was your, like, classic Y2K kind of low-rise skinny jean in the thigh with the flares at the bottom, and Tony wanted them. He was like, those, that style, we need that for Von Dutch. We need it now. Tony says that typically in the industry, you hire a designer and you give them three months to come up with a collection. You pay them a fee for their time, like $30,000 or something. And it covers the, the time, their material, designs, etc. And then you either like the clothes and you pursue it and make the collection or you just don't, but they still get paid for like the work that they've done. Well, apparently Christian only took two weeks to complete the collection and they loved it. Tony and Christian got along really well. So Christian was like, he was a character. He's that insane kind of guy who just lives life to the fullest. Like, everyone loved him. He was French with this thick, elegant accent, and he he was just so eclectic. And he would host these, like, ridiculous, extravagant parties on behalf of Von Dutch. They'd spend, like, a million dollars on a party a night. Like, he was, he was crazy. He was described as a celebrity whore, which I love. Like, he was just all up on the celebrities, his face, like, he looked like he had a lot of work done. He was, like, very contoured with the big, like, bulbous, like, lip injections, which, and this is no shade. I'm just saying, like, he's very, like, he's, like, beautiful Squidward on crack. <laughs> he's, like, what you picture, like, a French fashion designer. It's, like, just so incredibly bougie and over-the-top and extra. So Caroline, the vice president of marketing, said that, and I think I mentioned her maybe in the last episode or, yeah, she doesn't come up a ton, but Caroline, she's the VP of marketing. She said that they were trying to get Von Dutch away from the garage look and more into the boutique look, which like they're already, already the brand has disconnected from its origin. It was supposed to, it was based on people who would work in garages and it was inspired by Von Dutch, who was described as a garage surrealist artist. So it's like, you're missing the mark. You're the VP of marketing and you're missing the marketing. But it's But yeah, so this is kind of like when she said this in the documentary, I was like, all right, so I see where the nail is lifting. Like we're moving far away. They wanted to get into the denim bar at Fred Siegel's, which carried like only the coolest of the cool brands at the time. I think they still have some locations open. I'm like uncultured, so don't hate on me for that. But I wasn't actually familiar with the term denim bar, so I did some research, and there's not, like, a perfect definition, but based on what I read, it seems like a denim bar is referencing the idea of having multiple shades, cuts, and styles of denim jeans available. So, like, think of when you go to American Eagle or Buckle, and they have basically, like, the entire back wall of the store is full of different kinds of jeans, with, like, the little cubbies and all the different jeans and sizes and cuts from, like, acid wash to dark wash to skinny jeans to boot cut, everything in between. That's a denim bar. That's my understanding. If someone knows more about it, let me know. But that's what I, like, concluded on that. So this was the era of designer jeans, like true religions, missed me jeans, all that good stuff. Tony, Niels, Christian, and Caroline are living the lifestyle. So it's like this new staff has come in and kind of taken over Von Dutch. And they're just, I think someone, I think it might have been Mike. He said that, like, he had this great idea, or maybe it was Ed. It was this idea that was, like, authentic and cool, and then it got flipped on its head and prostituted out. They're just soaking it all up. They're traveling, they're partying, living it the fuck up. Caroline even got a guerrilla marketing award for her work with Von Dutch. So overall, things are going really well with the company. Like, sales are improving. 
they're like making strides in the direction that they want to take. So it looks good for them. However, we like can't forget about Mike. So tensions are rising between Mike and Tony and like the whole team essentially, but in Tony's eyes, they're like Mike Mike seems to be self-sabotaging. The brand is going a different direction from what it originally was. It was supposed to be simple, like original, authentic, genuine, all those like buzzwords, classic, but with a flair. And now it's becoming more popularized and straying away from the street culture that created it. And I think Mike saw this happening, but didn't know like what to do about it or how to articulate it. As we've seen so far, like he's obviously not the best businessman. He lost one brand, so it seems like he's losing another. It's really sad, honestly. And like at that point, he couldn't really do much about it because Tony was in charge. And so he just was kind of watching things slip out of his own grip. And Christian and Mike have different styles. They're similar, and they worked well together for a while, but Tony said that one was evolving and one was not. And Tony asked Mike if he would just, like, take a break. He was like, listen, just go on a vacation, relax, come back, get a clear head. But Mike was like, fuck no, like, this is my company. I want to do it how I want to do it. Like, this is not what I signed up for. I'm not happy with how this is going. I'm not fucking taking a break, Tony. Mike and Tony go for breakfast one day. And they bump into an old friend of Mike's, Robert Escobar. And Mike and Robert are like saying hello, like, oh my God, long time no see. Hope you're doing well. Good to see ya. And then Mike and Tony go and sit down and Mike's like, yeah, that's a hitman. And he'll kill someone for just $10,000. I think it's really good just to know someone like that. So he like makes sure that Tony gets it. He's like, listen, you want me to go take a break? You want me to chill out? You want to bring in some like French designer to like, take the brand a different route, whatever. You guys are all fucking living the life. But like, don't forget where this brand came from. And don't forget who the fuck Mike Castle is. So like, I thought that was badass. But Tony doesn't think so. Tony calls his attorney and he's like, you know what? It's time to execute the buy-sell option. So the buy-sell option basically gives the right to sell or buy. You're part of the, the business but you have to get reimbursed for what you put into the company. So Tony said that like Mike put no money into the company. He just had the creative part and like Tony funded it all. Tony put in $2 million. So based on the buy sell option terms, Mike would have to pay Tony $2 million and then he could keep the whole company and Tony would be out. Or Tony can pay Mike nothing because Mike didn't invest any money into the company and then he just gets to keep the company. So it's kind of fucked. There's a two-week window, like, once it's been exercised, where Mike can be like, yes, I'm going to buy the company. And then he gets three to five weeks additionally to actually get the money together and buy the business. So it's a quick option. Like, it's very quick. I'm kind of astonished that that's, like, a thing. It doesn't surprise me, though. Tony was, like, willing to take the risk that Mike would somehow come up with the money, which I guess is possible. Like, the whole time I'm thinking, like, Mike has been involved with all these drug lords and like he's pushing fucking units. And he, when we first started, people were talking about how he had Ferraris and nice homes and all this before he started Bronze Age. So it's like, to me, I think it just goes back to Mike not being a good businessman. Like, yeah, he had like lots of money and he had it quick at the beginning and he bought nice things, but like he lost it. He went to jail. He lost it. He lost Bronze Age. He like kind of got in a situation with this company where he doesn't have like as much control over it. So I think it just goes back to him not having, he's not good with money, like not good with keeping it. He can make the money. He's just not good with keeping it. And so I just kept thinking like, why can't he get someone to like spot him the money? Like, I don't know. He's probably got connections, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So Tony was like, whatever, I'm going to risk it. I don't think he's going to be able to get the money. And if he does get the money, then fuck it. Like whatever, he can buy his company back. I'll move on. Like, you know, whatever. So Mike did try everything that he could to get the money, but he wasn't able to. Um, again, that issue of him being a convicted felon, no one would loan him the money the right way. I guess that's it, too. Again, like he was trying to keep it as like a legit company instead of like a, a drug company. <laughs> Tony was relieved that he was actually able to have the company. It's been two years at this point. He spent a lot of time and money cleaning it up. And not having to work with Mike and his criminal affiliations would just, you know, make it easy, easier anyway. He's like, you know, this is a dope brand. I can see it really taking off, but there are some things holding us back. So he was excited about, you know, having full ownership of the company now. 
Mike is gone. This is, like, really fucked up. It's really sad, you know, because it's, like, he came up with all the designs and stuff. and But the same thing happened to Ed, so it's kind of like karma in a way. Yeah, this thing that he'd worked on for a couple of years now, his, like, dream was just taken from him, and now his all his artwork is gone. So it's it's pretty sad. Mike also is, like, in the interviews, he talks about how it's, like, the most dirty thing a man could do. Like, he says, he calls Tony, like, a dirty Danish man. He says there's something, like, up over there in Denmark and he's like I would have never done something like that to somebody like that's like the lowest of lows you know so he definitely takes it on more of like a loyalty standpoint and he's looking more at the principle of it because Tony's like well this is just a business decision I'm just doing what's best for the business and Mike is like dude we're humans like fuck the business like you just took my business and turned it into something else all about money sad but back to business. So sales are not doing well at Von Dutch. <laughs> this is no surprise. Seems to be a common theme. But here come the trucker hats. Like the fucking trucker hats. They are so cute. The trucker hats are kind of like the symbol of Von Dutch. What everybody thinks of when they think of Von Dutch is these trucker hats. They came into reality because the Von Dutch team had a bunch of like leftover rolls of retro prints and stuff and different materials. And they were like, all right, we're going to start using these and we're going to make patches and we're going to make like cool brims on these hats and make trucker hats. And they had been making hats already, but it wasn't like this iconic one that we all think of that has like the perfect little circle or like oval with the Von Dutch inside of it. And then like whatever cool designs. They were originally going to sell these hats for $19 a piece. I think that was like the break even or like whatever, like the lowest to like make a profit. But everybody was like, when they arrived and they were looking at them, they're like, these are so fucking cool. Like we all wanted one. So Tony was like, what if we price them from like 40 to $90, depending on what they're made with and just see like, why not? They're really cool. Like we all think they're really cool. Other people probably think they're really cool. And they literally sold out of their first batch. Like immediately people went fucking crazy for the Von Dutch trucker hats. And then this is when they started kind of like customizing them. You could change them. It was like everyone had their own custom Von Dutch hat. And that was what was so cool. They started focusing more on the relationships that they had with celebrities making custom work. Like this was now where they were trying to focus. It was like couture Von Dutch. So enter Tracy Mills, a celebrity fashion designer. He was one of Kanye's prior fashion designers, and he became an important person in the Von Dutch history. Tracy's brother, Chris Mills, played in the NBA for like 12 years. He had his own car company called 310 Motors that serviced celebrities, and through working here, Tracy met a ton of celebrities. So Tracy Mills fucked heavily with Von Dutch. She was like, no one's doing anything like this at all. Like, it's so different from what they were seeing at the time, and so he started introducing it to his celebrity friends. Our new head designer, Christian, wanted to meet Tracy. He was like, dude, you have to come work for us. Please help us get Von Dutch onto more celebrities. We've got to get more exposure. You've got the connections. You're a fashion designer. Like, join our team. And Tracy's like, fuck yeah, I like this. Let's do it. Like, black fashion. I love this shit. They start giving a ton of stuff to celebrities for free. Tracy would have the celebrities come into the store and, like, try different stuff out. And then they would just take what they wanted. And he was giving away so much product. And it's like, dude, just give them, like, one thing. They're, they have the money. Like, they didn't need to give them all free stuff. Like, they have, like, these are, the celebrities are people who have the fucking money. And it's not like Von Dutch was, like, I mean, they were pricey. It's not like everyone had Von Dutch. Like, originally it was pricey. So it, it was, like, I mean, I think of, like, the other brands that were big at the time. Like, I know Juicy Couture, like, Paris was wearing that. And, like, I, like, knew people who were Juicy. Like, it's not like it was unattainable. So it wasn't, like, super crazy expensive, but it also wasn't, like, super cheap. But it's, like, dude. They can afford to buy these things. They, they don't need everything for free. So this was kind of like another bad business decision that they were making. But because of this, because they were giving out so much shit to celebrities, Von Dutch basically blew up like huge over like the period of six months with the combination of the adorable trucker hats and like these new celebrity connections that Tracy Mills was bringing to the table. Tony has like all these Von Dutch hats with celebrity signatures, including people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mickey Rourke. R. Kelly, fucking yikes. I can't believe they even put that in the documentary. Uh, Muhammad Ali, Dr. Phil, Ashton Kutcher were Von Dutch on Punked, Yum, 
All the big celebrities were wearing it. Anna Nicole Smith, Britney, Jay-Z, Hilary Duff, Lindsay Lohan, Brandy, Usher, Bow Wow, Serena Williams, Halle Berry, Madonna, Vin Diesel, and Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston came in. She took 30 bags worth of items out of the store. And, like, the people working in the store, they were like, Tony, she has 30 bags. Like, can we actually give this to her? And he was like, have you heard her voice? It's fucking Whitney Houston. She could have a hundred bags if she wants. It's fine. Which I was surprised by. I was like, dude, you're supposed to be the money guy. So anyways, enter our beautiful Y2K fashion icon, Paris Hilton. So Paris Hilton, she is in the docuseries. I actually saw the commercial for the docuseries a couple months ago. I think when it was first coming out or like it hadn't come out yet. So this was back in November of 2021 that it came out, I believe. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah, I would love to see this. I want to see what she's talking about. Because I know Paris was, like, real big into Von Dutch. She had maybe, like, less than 10 sentences in total during the whole documentary. They just fucking used her face to get it out there to get people to want to listen to it. Because in the first episode, she's, like, the first thing you see for, like, five seconds. Like, they toss her a Von Dutch hat and she, like, laughs a little bit. And then you don't see her until the last episode. And she says, like I said, like maybe five things. And they were like, would you ever wear that hat again? And she was like, probably as a joke. <laughs> um, but okay. So apparently Tony didn't know who Paris Hilton was, which is just funny, but I mean, I guess it makes sense. I can't really blame him. Okay. Wow. I just had to like pause the recording for a minute because I've been sitting in the same position for so long that like my whole fucking entire right leg was numb, but like to the point that it literally hurt. And I was like, if I move, I'm going to have a fucking conniption. Okay. So my leg is better now, but okay. Right. So back to Paris Hilton, Tony didn't know who she was, which like is kind of fair in a way because she was famous for like no reason. She was famous for being rich and famous. So, oh my God, she's such an icon. I fucking love her. I know that's problematic. I want to do, I think I'm going to talk about Paris. I think I might do like a series on Paris and talk about like her life as like a fashion influencer and, you know, when she went to that school and was abused and like what she's done with her older life and like sex tapes and drugs and all that stuff I think would be really interesting. Maybe I'll learn more about her and maybe I won't like her, but (laughs) right now I like her. I fucking love her. So she went to Von Dutch on Melrose with Nicole before The Simple Life, and they bought, like, 50 bags worth of clothes and wore them on the show for the first season, which I've watched a lot of The Simple Life, but I watched the first season, and I didn't even, like, notice that she was wearing Von Dutch. Anyways, most of it was. They, like, put little, like, screen grabs of it in the docuseries. She said that Von Dutch was just fun and free. So Paris basically became a walking advertisement for Von Dutch. She would pair her trucker hat and t-shirts with Juicy Couture tracksuits and just call it a motherfucking day, and I want that outfit. So this is a story that Bobby told, which, remember our friend Bobby, he said this in the documentary. I don't know how true or valid it is, but I figured I would bring it up. So apparently Bobby and Paris were both at Club Spider one night, and she walked by, she's wearing Von Dutch, and Bobby, like, picks a fight with her about it. Because at this point, like, Mike is out of it, Bobby's out of it, fucking Tony's the owner. And she's like, yeah, well, I know the owner. And he's like, well, that's not the real owner. And they just, like, have this fight. Apparently a security guard came, whatever. Bobby said, like, at this time he was incredibly suicidal. Like, his girlfriend left him. He's got this baby he's living or, like, raising on his own. He got kicked out of, like, his company. So, like, shit's down down bad for him and actually his son at this point was living with his grandparents because he just wasn't fit to take care of him so it was just like he sees Paris out and it was like a slap in the face he's like this is so far from what this company was supposed to be and what it stands for like Paris Hilton with bedazzled purses and shit like this doesn't make sense Tracy says that back in the day celebrities were the shit like whereas today people are less enamored by them and then we also have influencers now too And I feel like it kind of has watered down the celebrity pool because anyone can, not anyone, but like it's like we have influencers now and we kind of view them as celebrities because they kind of are in a way. It's easier to become one. And you see, it's not like you just walk down the street and like discover people anymore. It's not like old Hollywood where some guy's like, hey, miss, you're beautiful. You want to be on the big screen? It's like, that's not how it works anymore. We, We can see anything and everything. So back in the day. Celebrities were the shit. 
And, like, we were super enamored by them. The fact that they were all wearing Von Dutch was incredibly influential. There's just the buzz around celebrities now isn't as exciting as it was back then. But, like, back then, if you saw a celebrity that you liked, it was, like, much more rare and organic. And you wanted to wear what they wore. You wanted to be like them. You wanted to, like, consume everything about them in that moment. I mean, we still obviously have the paparazzi and all that in the tabloids. But, like, back then it was, like, Bible. Von Dutch was blowing up basically is what I'm getting at. They were doing $150 million or more a year. Like the growth was exponential, exponential. The growth was exponential. (laughs) You could customize your own denim. Like you could go into the store, pick out your jean style and the patches that you wanted. And they would like sew it up how you wanted right there in the shop, which is so fucking cool. I love that. I love that. They were making millions of dollars. This is when they started seeing counterfeits coming out on the market. So while Von Dutch was making millions, the counterfeits were making billions. I think someone said that in the documentary. They were, I don't know if this is true, but they said that they were the second most counterfeited brand in the world next to Louis Vuitton. And it it makes sense. Like they were talking about the reason why was because the Von Dutch logo is like, it's easy to replicate, especially when it's just like a logo. I've bought jewelry from companies and like brands that like, well, basically straight up like rip off designer brands like Chanel and stuff. And they just like say that it's fake and they like, like they market it as fake. And so like, it's okay. It's like different enough to not be the same, but like they, you know what I mean? Anyways. So they're starting to see a ton of counterfeits coming in. It's starting to get a little washed down. I mean, that's how I feel about like Louis Vuitton and brands like that. I'm not like a super huge designer fan. I, I mean, maybe if I had the money, I would be. And obviously there are some things that are cute, but like everyone has the same like fake Michael Kors and the same fake Louis Vuitton and the same fake Gucci belt. And so it just doesn't have as much of that like exciting feel to it, I guess, anymore. So Christian just kept pumping like like the company's taking off. It's getting all these celebrities into it. People are loving it. It's like everyone wants Von Dutch. But Christian is like super money hungry and he doesn't know like when to stop and just kind of like revel in the moment like so he just keeps pushing product keeps making contracts whatever and their product qualities are getting lower and lower they and they were like okay maybe we should change the logo due to these counterfeits because like if we do something different or if we change the style of the clothes and not every single fucking like t-shirt or pants just says von dutch on it like it would be harder for them to counterfeit because it's like a little bit more unique but christian was like no i don't want to do that So because of this, it becomes more oversaturated, like very oversaturated. They started selling Von Dutch everywhere. It was now attainable to just like regular people. And so that kind of destroys like the whole image that it had. Well, it's had a lot of images, you know, it had the counterculture, street culture image. Then it blew up and became this like weird underground party scene thing where like celebrities were wearing it casually at parties and shit. And then it becomes like all the celebrities are getting custom Von Dutch. And now it's, like, you can go to, like, TJ Maxx and buy it. Like, it's it's not as exciting. And the, so they lost a big piece there. And then also, Christian starts taking kickbacks from companies. So a supplier told Niels that Christian raised the price of a wholesale tea from $16 to $18. Niels was like, what the fuck is that? Like, why is it $18? And he realized, like, oh, Christian's pocketing that $2 per shirt. So he's just lost control. Like, Christian has completely lost control of the brand. He wants to do anything and everything. He even wanted to do kids' clothes. And I think it was Tony. He was like, I do not want to do kids' clothes. That's so fucking lame. They started doing kids' clothes. They started doing clothes for your pets, like little purses and shirts and stuff. People started calling it Von Douche. So it's no longer this, like, cool counterculture movement. It's been watered down for just about anyone and everyone to consume. It became cheesy. And they were so far from the original concept that Mike had bronze age prison drawings like it's not that anymore it's like super obtainable and it's always a fine line because you know things become mainstream because they're good because people like it like pumpkin spice lattes kiss my ass there's a reason why they're so big and everybody likes it because like it's so yummy like you can't deny that things like that like there's a reason things go mainstream but i think this was like This is different. Like, there's not, like, a designer pumpkin spice latte. Like, maybe there is, but, like, Von Dutch had that thing. It had that sauce for a little bit, and then they just fucked it up. 
at this point, Paris has gone from being obsessed with it to, like, being completely repulsed by it. She's like, yeah, Von Dutch, not for me. In the docuseries, she said that she just went into her closet one day and she was like, I have so much fucking Von Dutch. And she just threw it out. And she said that she never does that with any clothing brands. Like, there's never been a time where she was like, I have to get rid of all of this brand. Like, I can't see it anymore. That's how she felt about Von Dutch. Let's talk about Mike, Bobby, and Mark. They are getting worked the fuck up and they want revenge. So Mike was really upset about being bought out of the company. And he was always upset about that. But like now he's seeing Von Dutch become this sellout of a brand. And like with the era of Paris and Pamela came rhinestone cowboy hats and purses. Like they had their own like girly, crazy, hyper pop, like Y2K cringe lines that I would absolutely wear, but lines with Von Dutch that were just not what, (laughs) like, Paris Hilton and Pamela Anderson are not, like, street. So it was definitely not where it was supposed to be, and this really upset Mike and Bobby and Mark and Ed, and the the OG Von Dutch was probably rolling in his grave, but also I feel like a part of him was probably like, haha, like, he just didn't give a fuck about people, and like he said, nothing's authentic or whatever, so... It's interesting how all these people, like, jumped on his bandwagon and, like, used his name to, like, ride through to, like, make money, and then it just kind of crumbled. So, who knows? Maybe he'd think it's funny. It's far from its original purpose. Donald said that Mike told him that... Donald is Mike's brother. Mike told him that he wanted to kill Tony. He was like, I want some fucking revenge. Like, I fucking hate that guy. And Mike says that he met with a number of people who came to ask him... Like, he didn't even seek them out. Like, people came to Mike because he just knew people, and they were like, dude... We know what happened. Like, do you need help with taking care of Tony? Because we got you. And Mike said that some of those people were, like, part of motorcycle gangs. Some of them were part of Escobar's ring. But he never had anything done to him officially. Like, obviously, he was alive and well in this documentary. But I thought that was crazy. I was like, dude, you are known for being this badass motherfucker. He even admits in the documentary, like, he's been involved in situations where people got injured and worse. And he's been in conversations about people dying and in, been involved with the arrangements of plans and stuff like that. So it just was like, dude, I feel like Tony's, this is like the one person that if they're, not to justify like hurting Tony, but like if there was ever a person that you were going to hurt and you have this bad rec- reputation, like wouldn't it be Tony? I thought that was crazy. Like that seems to be the one person that you would take care of when you're living this lifestyle. One day... Tony and Niels are in the car together after their, like, Friday tradition lunch or dinner or whatever it was, and Bobby is in another car, and he's, like, in their area, and he just holds a gun outside the window of the car and, like, makes sure that they see it, and Niels was like, what the actual fuck, and Tony was like, it's not that serious. Like, Tony the whole time, like, he knew he was fucking with some, like, hard-ass people, but he didn't realize that he was really in grave danger all along. But Niels was like, dude, I'm pretty sure, like, that's pretty serious. Like, how else should I react? I should be scared (laughs) to see someone holding a gun out the window at us. So one day, some men in all black suits and shaved heads show up to the headquarters, and they're like, we want to speak with whoever's in charge. They have a black briefcase, and they're like, we'd like to speak with Tony. Like, that's who we want to see. Apparently, it was Robert Escobar, and he walks in, he goes to talk to Tony, And the other two guys that were with him were, like, I guess, bodyguards. And, like, the whole office is freaking out. They're like, what the fuck is going on? Who are these guys that, like, come in? Robert introduces himself as the grandson of Pablo Escobar. And he offers Tony half a million dollars in cash to just walk away. And Tony's like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, just walk away. I guess Robert was like, you don't really have an option? Um, but, like, let's not forget that Tony's a martial arts master, okay? No, I'm kidding. Um, he didn't do anything. I guess they just kind of left. They were like, like, you don't really have an option. Like, we'll leave and come back, whatever. And so they come into the office, freak Tony out, and they leave. And then Caroline and Niels come in, and they're like, what the fuck do we do? And Tony's like, we're gonna, like, report this. So they called the L.A. County DA who came and did, like, an interview. And they thought it had something to do with Mike because, like, why the fuck would the Escobar family fly to LA to essentially, like, buy out a clothing brand on Melrose? Like, it had to have more purpose to it. It wasn't just the Escobar family just really wanted to own Von Dutch because it's cool. It was like, no, there had to be an underlying reason as to why this happened. 
And they were like, it has to be Mike. <laughs> That's the only way. And Mike said that he did talk to the Escobar family about what happened. I didn't really know, like, they didn't say anything about this in the, um, in the docuseries when, like, Tony was telling this story. But at this point, Mike says that, like, you know, they ran into Robert at a diner one time when he was eating with Tony. So I wonder if Tony, like, realized, like, oh, shit, I know who this guy is. Like, that was the hitman that Mike was telling me about. So I think it was all just, like, a stunt to, like, freak Tony out. But it seems like when they asked Mike, Mike was like, well, like, I talked to the Escobar family about what happened, but I didn't, like, send them there. I think they just did that on their own volition. Suddenly, the team was no longer as excited about ex- all this success. They were, they were pretty scared. <laughs> they were like, okay, shit's getting crazy over this stupid fucking clothing brand, and it's not that serious. It gets a little worse. Mike isn't the only one who's mad about the Von Dutch situation, so... One night, Mark and Bobby were talking about Von Dutch, and Mark is all the way hyped the fuck up about the whole situation. He's like, dude, it's not fair. Like, you got outed from the company, and, like, you should have a stake in the company. This this guy can't just come in and take that shit from you. Like, we should go make them reconsider. And Bobby says that Mark has just been, like, way through way too fucking much in his whole life. You know, like, he was raised into a gang family. He was, like, I think he told a story about them being, like, really young, and they were hanging out somewhere, and, like, they just got into a fight, and this guy, like, stabbed Mark with a screwdriver, and he just pulled it out and, like, beat the shit out of him. Like, just grew up living a very hard life, killed people, went to jail, came back, like, didn't really have a way out of this lifestyle. So he's been through a lot of trauma likely not in therapy, like, working through this shit. He's not in a rehabilitation. The fucking detention center that he went to that's supposedly supposed to reform people forced him to fight and, like, kill people, basically, is what they are implying. Like, he's alive, so he survived. Yeah, so he gets really angry. He gets really, really angry over things. So he's talking about the Von Dutch situation. He's fucking angry, and he just snaps this night. It's just him. It's just Mark and Bobby. So he takes it out on Bobby. Mark grabbed Bobby and, like, held him over the balcony of the house that they were at, I guess. And Bobby's like, dude, dude, like, chill the fuck out. It's just me. Like, why are you doing this right now? Calm down. And they struggle there for a while. And then Mark pulls him back up over the balcony and, like, throws him towards the building through a glass door into the house. And so then Mark goes inside and he grabs, like, a beer bottle and slams it, breaks it and holds the broken glass bottle to Bobby's throat, and he's like, open this fucking lockbox and give me a gun. And so Mark was, like, just straight up about to kill Bobby. Bobby opens the lockbox, and Mark pulls out the gun and holds it into Bobby's mouth, and Bobby's like, are you really going to kill me? Like, you're really going to kill Elijah's dad. Elijah's his son, by the way, that he has with Eli. He's like, you're really going to fucking kill me, bro? Like, we raised my son together. Like, you're going to kill me so he doesn't have a dad? And Mark is like, immediately emotional and he's like holy shit like you're right so he doesn't kill him and he just breaks down sobbing and like bobby held him in his arms for hours so like that is a true fucking ride or die bro like mark was about to kill bobby and bobby held him in his arms while he sobbed obviously this man has so much trauma that he needs to work through like it really breaks my heart like this is what i was getting at i think in the first episode when i was like i feel like we don't have enough information about mark I feel like he's got, like, a good part of him, but he's also got this, like, deep, deep shadow part of him. And it's just really sad. And I think that says a lot about Bobby's character. Like, Bobby is just, like, a a loyal-ass motherfucker who cares about his friends. It reminds me of Amanda, <laughs> my bestie Mandy. She's like that. So Eli says that, in hindsight, she realizes that Mark basically took the fall for the incident that happened with Bobby and the Burger King murder. Bobby brought the gun and was acting dumb with the gun, and Mark had to take it. And, like, yeah, Mark was the one who shot the gun, but, like, it was, it's kind of, like, all tricky. And I think legally, Bobby should have done three years for being involved with the crime, at least in jail. He didn't, because you don't snitch on your friends like Mark didn't snitch on him. So, Eli's implying that there's some pent-up anger and resentment from Mark toward Bobby for the way things went down. And also Mark has, like we just talked about, been through a lot. Mark was, like, constantly pretty hostile towards Bobby. They had this, like, very strange relationship. They were really, really close, very, very connected. But Mark was kind of, like, aggressive 
and Bobby kind of just took it, kind of setting the scene. Another night, Mark, Bobby, and Bobby's girlfriend at the time, Nicole, so like, remember, Eli's already gone at this point, the baby's with the grandparents, so he has a new girlfriend. She's also an ex-playmate, and they were all hanging out together when Bobby, like, just fucking nods out because he took too many hydros. So I think in the in the documentary, they called it, like, Norts or something like that. Like, I guess it's, like, slang for hydrocodone there, but he was taking hydros. He passed out. But then he wakes up because he hears two people, like, bickering, getting into a fight, and he realizes that it's Mark, and he's picking a fight with Nicole. He was trying to steal her diamond rings that she wears. Like, I guess she wore them all the time because Bobby said that Mark had suggested to him, like, multiple times before that, like, they should rob her for her rings. And Mark and Bobby was like, no, like, that's my girlfriend. You know, that's weird. And so Bobby was like, bros before hoes, but, like, you can't be, like, abusing her. So he gets up and he tries to break them up and Mark knocks him to the ground and he goes unconscious. And remember, he's, like, in this hydro-phased, like, state of being. And Mark, after he knocks him to the ground, just keeps stomping his head into the ground. Like, he's already down. He's already out of it. And he's just stomping his head into the ground. And then he grabs a tequila bottle, shatters it, and goes to slice Bobby's neck with it, with the broken bottle, like, while he's out cold. Like, he's not fighting back. And he's like, I'm just going to fucking kill him. Or this is at least the story that we're being told. And then Nicole jumps in and she's like, no, like, don't fuck with him. And they, like, tussle back and forth for a little bit, and then she ends up just, like, fucking leaving, and she gets out of there. Bobby got cut in the face, like, during this debacle. Is that the right word? During this fight. And he wakes up, and Mark acts like nothing has happened. He's like, you know, I didn't do anything to you. Bobby brushes this off like it's normal, and he's like, whatever, like, we get into fights. Mark's gonna apologize later. Whatever. Bobby realized later like right after essentially that he was a lot more busting up than he realized so he like goes to his room um shuts the door he's looking in the mirror and he's like oh shit like i'm fucked up like this guy was like curb stomping me and like trying to cut my neck and shit i'm actually a lot more fucked up than i thought so mark comes and starts banging on the door where bobby is and bobby's like is he really coming over here right now like what the fuck like just chill out bro like it's me what the fuck And Mark keeps shouting, and he's like, chalk it up, chalk it up. And Bobby explains that, like, saying that means, like, chalk it up. You're, like, chalking up a dead body on the ground. So, like, like, come on, bro. Like, let's fucking fight to the death type shit. And Bobby's like, what the fuck, bro? Like, we're supposed to be, like, close. Why are you trying to kill me? And Mark is just so aggressive. He breaks down the door, the shining style like breaks through the doorboard and then like reaches his hand in to unlock the door and he gets in and they start fighting wrestling whatever and at this point bobby has his gun like before mark even opened the door he's like dude like fucking go away you just like beat the shit out of me i don't want to fight you we're bros like i have my gun do not fucking come in here or i'll shoot you and mark comes in there anyways and so they're fighting they're holding like the gun is between them they're like physically in an altercation and the gun goes off quite a few times. The police say that the gun actually went off seven times, but Bobby says that wasn't proven, which I'm like, okay, whatever. But Mark is fucking dead. Mark has been shot seven times, and he's he's very dead. This was, like, incredibly heavy for Bobby. This was really sad because, I mean, they met in high school, and they'd been through a lot together. They'd bonded over the fact that they had that crazy experience together at the Burger King Um, But even before that, they were obviously very close. Like, Bobby was close with his family. Bobby said that he felt very close to his family because, like, you know, Bobby was adopted into a white family and, like, Mark was not white. And so he felt more, like, more akin to him and his family. And they'd been through so much. You know, he'd gotten close with Mike. He had a baby. He was with Eli. But all those people were kind of out of his life at this point. So it's like Mark was, like, his dude, his person. And he, like, had to kill him because he was always being so aggressive and in this moment he just went back down so this was hard for him and bobby had already mentioned being suicidal by this point and so as soon as this happens he's sitting there and he's like almost about to kill himself he's like going back and forth he's like what the fuck like i just killed my best friend what else do i have to live for he's contemplating suicide then he calls 911 and he tells them that he killed mark and he said it happened in a residence i did it as self-defense i killed him please hurry and get here. He did the right thing. 
So Mark Rivas's brother actually came onto the documentary to stand up for his brother's name. And, like, he's really emotional. He's crying. He's talking about how beautiful of a person Mark is and, like, what a shining bright light he was, which, based on the way that Bobby described their relationship, too, like, Bobby, it seemed like Bobby isn't disagreeing with that at all. Like, Bobby really fucking loved Mark. Um, Like, he's talked about how much they went through together, how he'd been there when Mark had done some serious shit. Like, he'd watched him kill people, but they were still true homies. And he mentioned before that Bobby and Mark had been through so much, obviously, but, like, he dealt with it by being angry, and he just took out a lot of anger on Bobby. It's almost like, it was like they were in, like, a relationship, like, an abusive domestic relationship, and, like, there were times where it was good, but it just got bad, and I think a lot of it was just Mark's mental health was not great after the life that he had been living. They went to trial within four months, and... There was no one in Bobby's side of the trial room, so it was, like, really sad. Bobby was that kind of, like, ride-or-die kind of guy, and then when it came down to it, no one was really there for him. Bobby actually testified his own version of the events, and this was kind of what, like, saved him. The jury seemed to be captivated by his testimony. He was really able to frame the testimony as, like, a rhetorical question to the jurors, like a real what-would-Jesus-do moment, like, what would you have done if you were me? you probably would have killed him too. Like, that was kind of how he phrased it. And he just explained it. He was like, dude, I fucking loved him. And I hate that it ended this way. And he's, he really emphasized how much he loved and feared Mark all at the same time. The jury came back very quickly and they were like, nope, he's guilty of none of these charges. Like, they didn't find him guilty for anything. I said that weird. You guys, <laughs> he's guilty for none of the charges. He was found not guilty of all charges. So I think people aren't happy. Like, I think that's why Mark's brother came on, because I don't think that they were so happy with the fact that Bobby killed Mark. Like, no one wants him to have died, obviously. But, like, that was kind of what I was getting at at the beginning, where I was like, you know, we have pretty much everyone's perspective except for Mark's. And Mark wasn't ever really, like, officially connected to Von Dutch, but, like, the death was because of Von Dutch, because he just was, like, getting upset that... Like, they didn't have their piece of the pie like they were supposed to. So it was, like, associated to Von Dutch. Yeah, it would be interesting to see his perspective on it and, like, really get his side of the story. Because they do kind of, like, they do a good job of, like, showing that Bobby really did care about Mark. And, um, like, it wasn't intentional. Yeah, so that's pretty heavy. Bobby was found not guilty. So this is, this kind of marks the end of an era for Von Dutch. The murder didn't really get as much attention when it happened. It was more later on. People started, I'm about to drop another bomb on you as if this wasn't already enough. But like this, what I'm about to tell you happened. And then later on, people were like, well, wait a fucking minute. This guy who was originally associated with Von Dutch also was a murderer. Then it became this whole like eerie true crime situation. In 2004, Fox News interviews Tony about Von Dutch. Apparently, there's this letter that the original Von Dutch wrote, and it's surfaced, and it's making a huge splash. So I kind of mentioned this in the first episode. As we mentioned before, Von Dutch died of liver disease, and apparently he wrote a note shortly before he passed away stating, and I quote, I am not willing to go through it anymore, only to emerge in a place full of inwards, Mexicans, and Jews. I have always been a Nazi and still believe it was the last time the world had a chance of being operating with a logic, end quote. So this this letter was from him like this. I guess this was confirmed somewhere. I don't know exactly how they know, but this was something that Von Dutch wrote before he passed away. Now we have this huge racism issue concerning the company because it's like, holy shit. But it's like something that they would have never imagined. You know, they're like, Because Von Dutch wasn't actually associated with the brand. He was just the inspiration. But it's like, yikes, you guys just took this guy's name who's like into being a Nazi. So it just is not a good look. So here's where it gets a little crazy. Ed Boswell, our old friend, says that Von Dutch being a Nazi was a part of like this internet mythological lore, which like, I don't know what the fuck that means, but the internet was still a baby at the time. Things that were on the internet were like pretty intentional. Like, I feel like nowadays you can just put anything anywhere. You can have any sort of websites. It's so easy to leave your mark on the internet. But, like, back in the day, not everyone knew how to do that. So the things that were out there were pretty intentional. Like, think back to our crazy cannibal forums. Like, that's not (laughs) normal or, like, just casual. Like, 
hee hee hello lol on the internet it's like you know it's just a lot so people were putting their shit out there with a purpose so now von dutch von dutch is canceled there's been a murder that's directly associated with the brand now the brand is like supposedly run by nazis this is one of the earlier accounts of cancel culture People were boycotting the clothes and labeling the brand as a Nazi company, so it's like obviously nobody wants to be affiliated with that. So all these companies are like canceling their contracts with Von Dutch, just throwing out the clothes. Nobody wants this shit. So now the company has to come out and be like, no, we're not racist, haha. And they, they're like, we don't want to affiliate with those comments. There's this little clip shown of Tony in an interview, and he's got like blonde hair to his shoulders. He's looking very, very LA and it's like, it's not a good look. Like, he's he's saying the company's not racist. It's an interview. And he's like, yeah, this company, we're not racist. Like, that's, he's just saying it kind of so casual and not putting a lot of effort into it. And he's, it's kind of awkward. And like, he almost kind of laughs. He's like, Von Dutch isn't racist. And it just doesn't look good coming from this like blonde, fair-skinned, blue-eyed, grown-ass man from Denmark. Like, it's just, it's not a good look for the company at all. He's saying the company's not racist. He's not saying that like Von Dutch necessarily isn't, but now everyone's embarrassed. And that OC Weekly article that I had told you guys about in the first episode, like this was the article that like was kind of the first one to come out that had little trailings of the racism. Not even little. They were very, they were open about it. They were like, listen, Von Dutch was a Nazi. Tony and the team contacted the magazine. They're like, where did you hear this? How did you find this letter? Like, what the hell? And Boswell was involved. And there were some other people that were interviewed, some of some people who were actually friends with Von Dutch. And, like, they were all pretty much just like, yeah, this dude was, like, known for being a racist. He didn't like people in general, but he particularly did not like people of color and was just a straight-up fucking asshole. So it wasn't really, like, a secret. I think that, like, that kind of mentality was common in this in that culture in, like, the 50s and 60s. And so... And that was just kind of the way it was. I'm not saying that it's like okay or excusable, but like that's not, it's not really a shock. Boswell said that <laughs> he would have been probably more quiet about Von Dutch's like Nazi tendencies if he had actually been paid the 1% of the company that he was supposed to receive, but he never got it. So when people were interviewing him, he was like, well, I'm not going to keep my lips shut. I'm just going to tell him how it is. Like, They've already taken the company and bastardized it so much. Like, fuck them. I didn't get anything out of it. That was how he felt about it. And Tony was like, well, if Ed was willing to, like, create a company and name it after Von Dutch and knew about this, then he must also be a Nazi. So it just becomes this whole mess. Obviously, this was basically the end of Von Dutch as they knew it. The company grew way too quickly, like, way too quickly. And they did not know how to handle it properly. I mean, from the get-go, the foundation of it was not good. Like, probably just that evil, like, Nazi energy seeping through all the rest of the company. It fell just as quickly as it grew. This is the curse of Von Dutch. Like, that's the whole point of the docuseries was pretty much anyone who's ever touched Von Dutch has (laughs) had, like, a negative impact from it. A lot of people hypothesize that if the company had stayed with Mike, and even Ed, maybe, it probably would have grown at a much more organic pace and it would have picked up the right crowd, the right clientele, the right people who wanted to be a part of that culture. And it would have grown into like a steady brand like we have today. I think of like a lot of the skate brands like Primitive and Black Sheep. It would have been like a consistent, solid brand that like people are aware of. They were like everyone was more focused on the money aspect of it, the quick cash, the claim to fame. and that ultimately screwed them over in the end. So it's really sad to see how something that started as something so like genuine got turned into something so fucked up. I kind of wish that Bronze Age had never been screwed over because I feel like that would have been really incredible to watch from, you know, the prison story of Mike being in jail and making the art and sending it back for them to print and then it becoming like this super big desirable brand. Obviously, the whole Von Dutch being a Nazi is not ideal, but like, does that does that take away from the quality of the art that Von Dutch made? Like, he did have an impact. It's so it's such a tricky conversation. Like, 
I don't want anybody to think that like I am promoting Nazi sentiment like in any way, shape or form. It's just it's just a crazy wrench that got thrown into this story that makes you like just really question it all because obviously like Mike and Bobby and all of them, they were not Nazis. So it just it it it's a lot to consider. I feel like it says a lot about our culture that we're so willing to sport a brand name that we don't even know its origin. Like so many people were wearing that. All the people that were wearing Von Dutch, they're not all Nazis, you know? Yeah. So let's see where everyone is now after that happened. Most of these people are still living their lives in SoCal, particularly like Long Beach and Venice Beach. Mike went into huge debt over battles trying to keep ownership of the company. He lost his house and he actually became homeless for a while, but he lives in a trailer now in like an undisclosed area of California and he's clean and sober and about to launch a new project. So that's exciting. According to the New York Times in 2009, Tony sold Von Dutch to Group Royer, a French footwear company. Can you imagine being the buyer of Von Dutch after a scandal in the 2008 recession? Like, sheesh. Tony said that he just, like, really needed peace after all that. He was like, I have been through so fucking much because of this company. I'm done with it. So he sold it, and now he is a fine arts photographer. Bobby Vaughn actually sued Von Dutch over his ownership rights, and he got some undisclosed settlement. And Christian Audigier left Von Dutch in 2007 to launch Ed Hardy. So I thought that was really cool. And it makes so much sense because their styles are very similar. And the whole time I was watching this, I was like, I feel like Ed Hardy was the same era, but it was like born out of Von Dutch in a, in a sense. Unfortunately, he died in 2015 at 57 years old after a battle with blood cancer. So that was really unfortunate. Um, I think Caroline is just out doing her thing. Like she stayed in the business world. She's just living her life. And I think that's everyone that we care about. Ed Boswell is just living his life in, um, I think he's in Long Beach as well. So despite everything that happened, despite there being a murder associated with the brand and all the fucking Nazi shit that was going on, the brand never actually stopped existing. Like, even though people stopped buying it and stopped wearing it, it still continued to be a brand. Ed Goldman is the acting general manager of Von Dutch North America as of 2021. And the company said they said that the company never actually closed and they managed not to go bankrupt. They just kept producing stuff and they were still selling it, but it definitely did flop for a while. It's crazy to think that after being outed for being inspired by a self-proclaimed Nazi, they were able to keep the company afloat. And I'm just still hung up on, like, how bitter Ed Boswell was. He was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. Like, (laughs) Um, I mean, I can't really blame him. So according to the New York Times, in 2019, Mr. Goldman was enlisted to help revive the Von Dutch brand and figure out how to market it to a new generation of shoppers. The brand had a very strong connection with the hip-hop community, which was where the light was shining still during the kind of downfall era, Mr. Goldman said. So over the last couple of years, Megan the Stallion and Saweetie have been spotted in Von Dutch, and last month the brand released... Oh, last month. I don't remember... Dang it. I didn't get the date of when this came out, but they're saying the brand released a streetwear collection with Young Thug, and Kylie Jenner and Travis Scott have also been seen sporting the iconic and infamous Von Dutch logo. This is so interesting to me, because the whole like cloud of cancel culture that surrounds this topic. So recently, over like the last six or seven months or so, I've been familiarizing myself with this concept of cancel culture and how it really negatively impacts us sociologically, spiritually, and just collectively, like for the collective greater good. I discovered Clementine Morgan on Instagram. She's a published author and podcaster, and I have her information in the show notes with all the sources. Um, But her life's work is to undo this weird behavior that society has adopted regarding cancel culture and exiling people. So we cancel people because they're abusers and then we don't allow them to like redeem themselves or rehabilitate themselves. We harass them on social media. We call their jobs and get them fired. We cancel people who are still friends with them. We make it a whole spectacle. And it can actually be just as bad as the offense they were canceled for, if not worse sometimes. And the saddest part is that it's so easy to cancel someone. Like you can tell a lie and get someone canceled and essentially ruin their life, making it impossible for them to find work or peace ever again. And it happens to people who haven't done anything. 
I'm not saying this to be like an, a Nazi apologist. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm I, I'm talking more about like the brand. But like anyone can just come up with some bullshit reason to get someone canceled. Just like I could just not like somebody and I'd be like, you know what? They abused me. They were an emotional abuser to me or like even worse. Like, And I'm not saying that people who are victims of sexual assault or emotional abuse are like in the wrong for like making it known. But like cancel culture is very toxic. Yes, you deserve to be heard and you deserve to get help. Like it's that easy to ruin someone's life and it pushes people to suicide. And, like, how does that make anyone feel any better? So this is what Clementine focuses her life's work on, breaking down the taboo of holding space for potential abusers and then helping them change and learn from their actions. And I think that's really dope. By enforcing cancel culture, we're promoting similar behaviors as the American prison reform system. And reform is in quotation marks. Like, we all know how terrible our prison system is. We punish people, and then we turn them into even harder criminals in our so-called rehab facilities. And, like, I'm sure that not every person who's done something bad can be rehabilitated. And I bet that, like, some of them don't even want to be. But we should still try to help those who can be rehabilitated and the ones who want to. We need to focus on the collective and push for genuine change for the better. I like her work. And I'm sure that that little blurb, like, didn't really do it any justice. And I'm not saying that I'm supporting people's rights to be Nazis. Like, fuck that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just, you know how this show is. I like to, like, consider all the different perspectives And I wanted to bring this up because it's interesting how this brand was like one of the original cancels and it was canceled for being inspired by a Nazi. And now it has slowly made a comeback over the past few years. Von Dutch has touched so many different cultures and perspectives and this this reintegration of Von Dutch brings their history full circle in a sense. It's really hard to think about because like everyone has something that's undesirable about them. Obviously, Nazis are very fucking undesirable and have done some very, very terrible things. They were inspired by his art and they didn't know anything about his like Nazi background. And so it's it's it brings up that argument of like separating the artist from the acts that they did. We know as of recent years, there are tons of artists and producers and creators who have done fucked up things. And like those are just the ones that we know about. It begs like the question of where do we draw the line? I don't know. What do you guys think? Can the brand be separated from the self-proclaimed Nazi who inspired it? I'd love to hear what you guys think. This was a super, super fun episode. Like, I really was, like, drawn into the documentary. I mean, I've obviously seen better ones, but I would definitely recommend going and watching it. I love seeing the progression of how it, it literally hit so many different target markets. Like, it went all over the fucking place and just completely derailed from what it was and now it's like back to this weird it's back to the, like this taboo appreciation with celebrities wearing it and stuff anyways i love paris hilton <laughs> so thank you guys for listening you guys know what the fuck to do please give me a five star rating please share this with all your friends you can reach out to me at profskeppodcast that's at p r o f s k e p podcast on instagram and twitter you can find the link in bio there to send me an email um you can also follow my personal accounts there as well and i think that's it so thank you again all so much for listening i hope you have a lovely lovely week and stay sus skeptics till next time